European Heart Journal Issue at a Glance, Volume 41, Issue 48, Focus Issue, Hypertension, by Editor-in-Chief Professor Filippo Crea, read to you by Morgan Bryan. Focus on hypertension, but also on the digital twin, and on kidney function and disease. This issue opens with a special article entitled, Scientific Integrity what a journal can and cannot do about it. This contribution is authored by my successful predecessor, Professor Thomas Lucia, and myself, together with esteemed colleagues. It deals with the important issue of scientific integrity and with the actions that journals undertake to guarantee that published manuscripts are inspired by the highest ethical and quality standards. Many cardiologists are asking about precision medicine. Aren't we there yet? In this trip towards precision medicine, a view out of the side window reveals a changing landscape. Recent advances demonstrate steady progress towards the destination of using genomics and other information for multi-omics platforms to diagnose patients more precisely and treat patients individually. This omics approach has already delivered great achievements, especially in the management of specific cancer conditions. Nevertheless, the initial conception of precision medicine has already been criticised for being too centred in genomics and failing to address challenges of clinical management. In a special article entitled The Digital Twin to Enable the Vision of Precision Cardiology, Jorg Coral Acero from the University of Oxford in the United Kingdom and colleagues argue that another key element towards precision medicine is the increasing power of computers and algorithms to learn, reason and build the digital twin of a patient. Computational models are boosting the capacity to draw diagnosis and prognosis and future treatments will be tailored not only to current health status and data but also to an accurate projection of the pathways to restore health by model predictions. The early steps of the digital twin in cardiovascular medicine are reviewed in this paper, together with a discussion of the challenges and opportunities ahead. The authors emphasise the synergies between mechanistic and statistical models in accelerating cardiovascular research and enabling the vision of precision medicine. This issue continues with a focus on hypertension. Raised levels of blood pressure, or BP, result from the complex interplay of environmental genetic factors, leading to the activation or suppression of one or more of a host of physiological systems involved in blood pressure regulation. The complexity of blood pressure control mechanisms has major implications for individual responsiveness to antihypertensive drugs because of the inevitable variety of hypertensive phenotypes, the identification of which, with some notable exceptions, remains elusive to the practicing physician involved in making treatment decisions for individual patients. A further element of complexity is the timing of administration of blood pressure-lowering drugs. Indeed, some prospective clinical trials suggested improved normalization of blood pressure when conventionally formulated single and combination hypertensive medications are ingested at bedtime rather than upon wakening, without increase in adverse effects. Current guidelines on the management of hypertension do not provide specific recommendations on the administration time of blood pressure-lowering drugs. 
In a clinical research article entitled Bedtime Hypertension Treatment Improves Cardiovascular Risk Reduction The Hygia Chronotherapy Trial Ramon Hamida from the University of Vigo in Spain and colleagues present the Hygia Chronotherapy Trial conducted within the clinical primary care setting and designed to test whether bedtime in comparison to the usual upon wakening hypertension therapy exerts better cardiovascular disease, or CVD, risk reduction. In this multicenter, controlled, prospective endpoint trial, about 19,000 hypertensive patients were assigned to ingest the entire daily dose of greater than one hypertension medications at bedtime, or all of them upon awakening. At inclusion, and at every scheduled clinical visit, at least annually, throughout follow-up, Ambulatory blood pressure BP monitoring was performed for 48 hours. During the 6.3 years medium patient follow-up, 1,752 participants experienced the primary CVD outcome CVD death, myocardial infarction, coronary revascularization, heart failure or stroke. Patients of the bedtime, compared with the upon-wakening treatment time regimen, showed significantly lower adjusted hazard ratios of primary CVD outcome, 0.55, P less than 0.001, as well as of each of its single components. The authors conclude that routine ingestion by hypertensive patients of greater than or equal to one prescribed BP-lowering medication at bedtime, as opposed to upon wakening, results in improved ambulatory BP control significantly enhanced decrease of a sleep BP, and increased sleep time relative BP decline, i.e. BP dipping. And most importantly, markedly diminished occurrences of major CVD events. This manuscript is accompanied by an editorial, a Jawahar Meta from the University of Arkansas in Little Rock, USA and colleagues. The authors identified several strengths and weaknesses of this study. Inclusion of a large number of primary care patients of both genders followed for a long time, receiving a variety of antihypertensive medications, are major strengths. Additionally, the study establishes in a large population that bedtime administration of antihypertensive medication is safe. On the other hand, this study included only a Caucasian population in Spain. Thus, further studies in multiracial groups need to be conducted before the routine bedtime intake of hypertensive drugs can be recommended widely. Secondly, this study by design could not determine the effects of bedtime versus morning intake of antihypertensive drugs in dippers and non-dippers on cardiovascular outcomes. In summary, the test time will establish whether the novel and striking findings of this study will change our medical practice. Angiotensin converting enzyme 2, or ACE2, is the cellular entry point for severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus, or SARS-CoV-2, the cause of COVID-19 disease. In a recent study, male sex and clinical or biomarker indicators of biological aging, cardiovascular disease and diabetes were associated with higher blood levels of soluble ACE2 while information on the tissue levels of ACE2 is rather limited. In a clinical research article entitled Hypertension and Renin-Angiotensin System Blockers 
are not associated with expression of angiotensin-converting enzyme 2, or ACE2, in the kidney. Xiao Zhang from the University of Manchester in the United Kingdom and colleagues note that, in particular, the effects of renin angiotensin system, or RAS inhibition, on ACE2 expression in human tissues of key relevance to blood pressure regulation and COVID-19 infection has not previously been reported. Zhang et al. examined how hypertension, its major metabolic cofenotypes, and antihypertensive medications relate to ACE2 renal expression using information from up to 436 patients whose kidney transcriptomes were characterized by RNA sequencing. The authors further validated some of the key observations in other human tissue and or a controlled experimental model. They found increasing expression of ACE2 with age in both human lungs and kidneys. No association between renal expression of ACE2 and either hypertension or administration of common types of RAS-inhibiting drugs was shown. In addition, the authors demonstrated that renal abundance of ACE2 was positively associated with indexes of kidney function and showed a strong enrichment for genes responsible for kidney health and disease in ACE2 co-expression analysis. Zhang and colleagues conclude that their results indicate that neither hypertension nor antihypertensive treatment are likely to alter the expression of the key entry receptor for SARS-CoV-2 in the human kidney. They note that the data further suggests that in the absence of SARS-CoV-2 infection, kidney ACE2 is most likely protective, but the age-related increase in its expression within lungs and kidneys may be relevant to the risk of SARS-CoV-2 infection. The manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Jawahar Mehta from the University of Arkansas in Little Rock, USA, and colleagues. They note that the variations in tissue collection and the retrospective nature of the study are major limitations. The latter is particularly worrisome, wherein the autopsy data and the patient's medical history and medications were correlated. Despite these limitations, the authors were able to collect a large number of tissue samples and provide important data on renal ACE2 expression. The issue also contains a special article entitled Nomenclature for Kidney Function and Disease, Executive Summary and Glossary from a Kidney Disease, Improving Global Outcomes, or KDIGO, Consensus Conference by Andrew Levy from the Tufts Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts, and colleagues. The authors note that the worldwide burden of kidney disease is rising. In addition, guidelines have called attention to kidney disease as an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease for greater than 20 years. Yet public awareness remains limited, underscoring the need for more effective communication by stakeholders in the kidney health community. Despite this need for clarity, the nomenclature for describing kidney function and disease lacks uniformity. In June 2019, KDIGO convened a consensus conference with the goal of standardizing and refining the nomenclature used in English language to describe kidney function and disease and of developing a glossary that could be used by journals and scientific publications. Guiding principles of the conference were that the revised nomenclature should be patient-centered, precise, 
and consistent with the nomenclature used in the KDIGO guidelines. Conference attendees reached general consensus on the following recommendations. 1. To use kidney rather than renal or nephro when referring to kidney disease and kidney function. 2. To use kidney failure with appropriate descriptions of presence or absence of symptoms, signs and treatment rather than end-stage kidney disease. 3. To use KDIGO definition and classification of acute kidney disease and disorder or AKD, and acute kidney injury, or AKI, rather than alternative descriptions to define and classify severity of AKD and AKI. 4. To use the KDIGO definition and classification of chronic kidney disease, or CKD, rather than alternative descriptions to define and classify severity of CKD. And 5. To use specific kidney measures, such as albuminuria, or decreased glomerular filtration rate, or GFR, rather than abnormal or reduced kidney function, to describe alterations in kidney structure and function. A proposed five-part glossary contained specific items for which there was general agreement. Conference attendees acknowledged limitations of the recommendations and glossary, but considered that standardising scientific nomenclature is essential for improving communication. Finally, this issue also contains discussion forum contributions. In an article entitled Atrial Fibrillation, an Equivalent of Cardiovascular Disease Risk, Vivencio Barrios from the University Hospital Ramon y Cajal and Carlos Escobar from the University Hospital La Paz comment on a recent publication entitled Cardiovascular Outcomes, Bleeding Risk, and Achieved Blood Pressure in Patients on Long-Term Anticoagulation with the Thrombin Antagonist Dabigatran or Warfarin, data from the RELI trial, by Michael Baum from the Saarlandes University in Germany and colleagues. Baum et al. respond in a separate comment. The editors hope that this issue of the European Heart Journal will find the interest of its listeners and wish to thank the reviewers who have contributed with their comments to selections of this and other content.